So, Laria, maybe tell me a little bit about how you got into your field, your study. Um, yeah, so I started, so when I, when I was in the secondary school, basically, I decided that I wanted to do uh, astronomy. And mm -hmm. uh, it was because I was interested in learning about the universe. And, and where did where did you grow up? People will hear your accent. Uh, yeah, I'm Italian. So yeah. I grew up in Italy in a small town, just uh, 50,000 people. Wow. Uh, and then... Uh, as I said, already when I was in the secondary school, that's what I wanted to do. So then I uh, went to the university in Bologna. That's mm -hmm. where I studied. And I... Um, Which most people don't know, but it's a very old university, right? Yeah, actually, we like to say that it's the oldest university okay. in, uh, in Europe. Uh -huh. But then I, I did a PhD in Heidelberg, where they told me that that is the oldest university. Oh, so that was little, kind of funny. little argument. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so then, uh, yes, I did uh, further studies in, uh, in Germany, and uh, after that, after take, having a PhD in astrophysics, uh, I moved to the U.S. Uh, mm -hmm. as a postdoc, and since 2004, that's where mm -hmm. I am. And you're, you're a theorist primarily, right? Yeah, I do theory and as well as observation, so I okay. like to combine the two. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I want to talk about planet formation and I, I just to start in very general terms I think for many people it's amazing that um, you know you start with this cloud of gas and dust and it's diffuse and has very mm -hmm. little structure and then you end up with a star and these planets and their very particular orbits I mean can you just paint a general picture of how we think this happens uh, okay <laughs> so <laughs> just uh, the sort of high level view if you like Okay, so yeah, as you mentioned, basically, uh, we think that it all started with uh, um, a cloud of gas that was uh, um, basically accreted mostly onto the central star, and because of the rotation of uh, this cloud, um, then uh, uh, the round cloud that we have first in mind started to flatten into more a pancake-like shape, more mm. uh, a disk, that's how uh, we call it. And then, uh, um, with time, uh, these uh, initially very tiny grains that are submicron in size, meaning you cannot even see them with your eyes, they started to um, stick together and then uh, grow into, into larger uh, bodies. And initially, and then, they're not even sticking by gravity, right? Yeah, they're that's right. This Brownian motion mm -hmm. and... Uh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, and uh, uh, but then uh, once they grow enough, uh, like they are uh, kilometer in size, then gravity starts to matter at that mm -hmm. point. And there is, uh, we think there is a, a threshold in mass uh, of these large bodies above uh, which then they start to accrete also uh, the gas from uh, from the disk, so they can form. Uh, uh, the gaseous envelopes of, uh, of giant planets like mm -hmm. Jupiter and Saturn. So the one interesting thing uh, in, uh, in the theory and also in how the solar system looks like is the distinction between uh, the inner planets mm -hmm. and the outer planets. The inner planets are mainly made of rocks uh, and the outer planets are much larger and uh, they have also a large envelope of gas. Mm -hmm. and we basically understand how that distinction happens and is due to the uh, condensation of water vapor into ice beyond a certain radial distance from the star, which mm -hmm. we call the snow line. And where in our solar system is the snow line? <laughs> yeah, it's uh, roughly um, at the location uh, where the asteroid belt is a bit 
right. the, the asteroid belt uh, is today. So we understand that the inner planets, uh, so uh, Mars, uh, Venus, Earth, and Mercury, they accreted, we say, dry because the rocks from which they formed didn't have any water ice into mm -hmm. them, while the outer planets, uh, they accreted, we say, wet because the rocks from where they formed, they had water mm -hmm. ice uh, into them. And of course you have to rewind the clock because the sun wasn't the same luminosity when the solar system formed as it is now, so how, yeah. how does that affect? Yeah, that, that's perfectly right. So there is a lot of, um, there are many theoretical studies in trying to understand exactly where this snow line uh, is changing uh, with time. And we think uh, and that it has changed exa mm -hmm. exactly because the sun uh, was also, its luminosity was changing with time. Mm -hmm. So it has been uh, uh, moving around and the details are a bit complicated. But the thing we understand is uh, uh, very well is why the outer planets are larger than the inner planets. Right. Basically, because they uh, formed beyond the snow line, the surface density of the disk was larger, meaning there was more material to start with, and therefore uh, the cores of the giant planets, they uh, accreted much faster mm -hmm. than uh, all the other cores inside. So they could then uh, um, get also gas from, uh, from the solar nebula. Now we say talk about the cores, but of course we look at the giant planets we don't see. How 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 certain is it that they have rocky cores? Yeah, that, that's also true. So um, we think uh, uh, there is some. I mean, especially for Saturn, there is more evidence that it has uh, a core. These are not. Uh, well, we don't know the exact details. They could be. Um, a few times uh, the mass of Earth, or perhaps uh, up to ten times the mass of Earth. Mm -hmm. It's a very difficult measurement, but we do think that they have uh, um, a core uh, that is made of, uh, or was made from the accreted mm -hmm. rocks of, uh, 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 mixed with ice, basically. And uh, there is some indirect evidence that giant planets would have some uh, cores mm -hmm. through the studies of uh, exoplanets, basically. Right because we do see that uh, the amount of, uh, um, we call them metals basically, the amount of elements um, that have an atomic number larger than hydrogen, mm -hmm. <laughs> we say that, um, is uh, correlated uh, with the number of uh, giant planets. Okay. We suggest suggesting that uh, um, the more heavy elements you have, uh, the easier you can form the course of these mm -hmm. uh, giant planets. Now another interesting thing about this formation is uh, it's pretty rapid, I mean, in terms of astronomical timescales, to go from the initial cloud to fully-fledged mm -hmm. planetesimals and planets. So how long does it take? Do we know? Yeah, so we have uh, some indirect evidence. Um, we, for instance, know that uh, uh, gas and dust uh, are present around young stars for at most, say, uh, 10 million years, these uh, protoplanetary disks. Mm -hmm. And when we look at uh, uh, many objects in uh, different uh, star-forming regions that have different ages, we can have some uh, also statistical uh, numbers uh, for the average time that the disk is around uh, a typical star. And that time is only um, 3 million years. Wow. So mm -hmm. by 3 million years, we think that at least uh, the giant planet should have formed around mm -hmm. uh, the sun, yeah. So you also are talking about an important part of this whole subject where 
when you have these processes that take place over millions of years and you can't watch them happen, you have to find examples yeah. at different evolutionary stages elsewhere. And, and are we, is that successful? Can we find all the different stages of this process? Uh, well, that's of course uh, very difficult, but um, the universe is large and we have uh, uh, many examples of uh, regions that are tracing different Mm -hmm. time scales. So that's what astronomers do. They look, for instance, at a very young region like Orion, where um, there are uh, stars that are only a million years old, and then we can study mm -hmm. the properties of the dust and gas around these young stars. And then we look at some other intermediate regions that are five million years old, and then in some other old ones. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, we have, uh, I think now, at least for the component studying the dust uh, around these young stars, we have a very good sampling right. going from 1 to 10 million years. Mm -hmm. right. and so back to the solar system for a minute, uh, you know, people who look at the behavior, it's very regular, all the properties seem very smooth and continuous, but then there mm -hmm. are these oddballs, you know, there's Venus, yeah. which is upside down, and Uranus is on its side, and when you see these peculiarities, do we know how to explain them, or, I mean, it's hard, no one was there to see what happened, so can we explain the exceptions to the rules? Yeah, so that, that's a very important question because uh, um, the, the short answer is we have some ideas on how mm. to do that. and uh, um, But of course we are not sure that is uh, the right one, so that's why it's always important to confront our uh, theory with the observations mm. that we have. But for instance in terms of uh, odd examples like hot Jupiters, um, so these are giant planets that probably formed beyond the snow line and now we see them very close to the central star. What we think has happened is that at some point during their formation and uh, evolution they have uh, started to migrate uh, inward uh, through the interaction between uh, probably other planets but mainly because of the gas uh, that it was orbiting around the star. So we understand that in terms of migration. Other example, like you were mentioning uh, Uranus, uh, um, we think there were probably um, interactions between uh, la uh, later stages, uh, gravitational interaction between uh, this planet and other planets nearby that could have changed uh, somewhat their orbit or their tilt. Mm -hmm. So that's how we think about it. And that. of course, people think of the solar system as regular <laughs> and it doesn't really change over large time scales, but I mean, not all. I mean, our planet system, that's a simple question, I guess. Is it stable? Is it going to be the, look the same billions of years from now as it does now, our solar system? Um, well, um, not quite, because it was also the sun mm -hmm. that is actually uh, changing. Its uh, luminosity is changing. For So one thing that actually is quite interesting for us, I think, is that uh, the location uh, that we call the habitable zone mm -hmm. where the liquid water can uh, be present on a planet is changing with time. And we know that in a billion years or so, basically Earth will be out uh, of more or less of that okay. region. So, so we better have a plan. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we have time <laughs> for that, yeah. So habitable zones move, well, that's, that's of course interesting. The, the um, other thing I think it's interesting, I mean, we have seen it uh, also recently with the meteor impact in, uh, in mm -hmm. Russia. There are always uh, uh, smaller bodies that could be from the asteroid belt or sometimes even from the comets, mm -hmm. so from the Oort cloud region, that can move closer into Earth so they can, the solar system is actually... Um, 
uh, not static as we might think of right. while we are living here. So there are things happening meanwhile. Does that even extend to the major architecture? <laughs> I mean, are the, the eight major planets, are they going to stay in their current orbits for as far as you can project into the future, or are they, um, or are they maybe unstable at some point? Uh, it's, I, I think it's possible that they will become unstable, though I didn't think about this question, uh, but I certainly know that they were unstable in the past right. because we have evidence, uh, well, there are strong suggestions from models that actually we started from a more compact configuration and then the planets, they moved uh, uh, outward. So, mm -hmm. so independent of the changing luminosity of the sun, the ha planets can move around and and be in and out of habitable zones by migration, by their own movement. Uh, yes, but probably not for the for the solar system right now. Right. I mean, right. So most of the movement does most of the large scale movement happen early, or can it happen at any time in the evolution? Um, so the migration, uh, definitely the one we were talking for, the hot uh, mm -hmm. uh, Jupiter's, uh, definitely has to happen early because uh, it's uh, linked to the presence of the gas, right. basically. And then uh, uh, later on, uh, um, migration between the planets or um, gravitational interaction, they can happen if uh, the planets uh, are close enough that they can perturb their orbits. But mm -hmm. if they are separated enough, then they are likely going to be mm -hmm. stable for a long time. So we do not, we right. shouldn't expect much of a move. So, you know, talk about the general changes to the subject, especially the theory when we discovered exoplanets. So when we only had one solar system to explain, mm -hmm. you know, there's always a worry that you're telling a just-so story, you know, that you explain mm -hmm. the thing you know the best and what you understand doesn't apply elsewhere. So we got some, obviously, some big surprises with exoplanets. How did that affect yeah. the, peop the theory of how planets form to find other, the first other examples? Yeah, well, definitely um, one thing we have learned from exoplanet is uh, one aspect we touched upon before is that the formation of the planets is not as smooth as mm -hmm. we process as we might have thought when we were studying only the solar system. Right. So especially early on uh, in the formation of the planets, there is a lot of interaction between these planetesimals and there can be migration of the giant planets as well. So we have definitely learned mm -hmm. that that uh, the formation of the solar system is a much or planetary systems is a much more dynamic process right. than we thought initially and just as just to explain that one issue you know the first exoplanets found a lot were hot jupiters how is it that we know they couldn't just have been formed there when we see those when we saw those <laughs> things orbiting close and very hot how do we know they didn't form there well, that's a very good question. The, the issue is that uh, there was not uh, enough mass, basically, mm -hmm. to form those big planets right. at that location. So they must have formed outside and uh, of the snow line and then migrating inward, basically outside a few uh, ast astronomical units and then migrating inward. And why do they but not just go fall all the way in? There's a strong gravity of that star, so why do they yeah. park? Yeah, so that is actually not well understood. Uh, one uh, simple explanation is that uh, probably the protoplanetary material uh, was uh, truncated at some radius. So in mm -hmm. other words, uh, the gas and dust, they were not uh, uh, continuously uh, close to the central star, but there was 
a truncation radius, so they stopped and they parked there. But that's actually not enough to explain all the properties of the uh, odd Jupiter, so there must have been some other interaction between them, the star, and possibly other planets that were there. And yes, we also think now that um, some giant planets might have formed early on, they migrated inward, and perhaps some of them they ended up onto the star. Okay. So it's also possible that uh, we lost some giant right. planets. Another thing I remember from the first hundred or so exoplanets is they had a lot, they had high orbital eccentricities. They were more than the eccentricities in the solar system, outer solar That's system. True. And is that, un is that still generally true and is it understood? Uh, yeah, that is, um, well, at least from the radial velocity we get these uh, measurements and uh, yes, there are still many planets that are in uh, eccentric orbits mm -hmm. and the only way to uh, explain that uh, is again through interactions between the planets once they are uh, fully formed because if they would form only in a, a disk of gas and dust, uh, the interaction between the planet and the gas would help to uh, somewhat circularize, mm -hmm. so make the orbit more circular than uh, uh, elliptical, mm -hmm. so that's how we understand. But another thing that we learned from uh, uh, the giant planets that I'm very um, interested in for the theory of uh, planet formation and evolution is that there are pileups uh, of giant planets at specific location from the central star, like for instance at one astronomical unit. Mm -hmm. And the way uh, we, and actually this was uh, one of my ideas, we understand this is uh, through another process uh, that can disperse uh, uh, the gas and dust uh, in protoplanetary disks. And this is uh, through uh, carving of gaps uh, at specific location from the central star because of uh, the way the star heat the gas. Mm -hmm. So the gas is leaving the system at specific location and then creates gaps and the giant planets, when they try to migrate in war, they get stranded at those gaps, so they cannot fall in. And it appears like one astronomical unit is a preferential location because of the specifics of the, how this method And this works. is not strictly a resonance phenomenon, then? No. It's something different. It's gas yeah. dynamic. Yeah. Yes, and it's uh, related to the process of um, uh, so-called photoevaporation, mm -hmm. which is uh, a similar process that we see in... Uh, disks uh, in uh, Orion, mm -hmm. when there is a massive star that is eating the gas and that gas leaves the system in a kind of a wind. In the case of many other systems, what happens is that is the star, the central star, that is providing energy to lift the material from the surface and carve gaps uh, at specific locations. Mm -hmm. so that's and maybe this is related to the eccentricity or not, but I've, I read you know, in the last few mm -hmm. years of systems found where they inclination of the planet orbits is also quite unusually extreme because yeah. most of the planets in the solar system are coplanar. Is that is that a general phenomenon or is that just a few systems that have this? Um, I think that it is not so general and actually it's a very difficult measurement to do so we do mm -hmm. not know but uh, I think the norm is that the planets are uh, in the same orbital plane and then mm -hmm. there are of course uh, some um, exceptions and right. I think those exceptions may be due in some cases to uh, the interaction between the star, a companion star and the planet. So there you need a more massive body to perturb the um, orbit of, of mm -hmm. the planet around the primary star. Right. So it's again more dynamical interaction that we see um, 
in, in these uh, mm -hmm. systems. So now that we have hundreds of, uh, well, thousands of exoplanets and, and also a large number of multiple planet systems, mm -hmm. I don't even remember the number. How many multiple planet systems? There's like a hundred or more? Uh, actually, I think there are more than that now uh, because it was of s several hundred, okay. I think. Now. So now we have these good statistics. Are we in a position to say what the full range of exoplanet properties are, or to say whether our solar system turns out to be a little unusual or not? <laughs> Is the Copernican principle wrong? Well, that, that's a good point. I mean, uh, that's something that I would actually like to do, and I'm trying to work on that, to, to connect the um, uh, basically early stages of uh, uh, disk evolution and planet formation to the exoplanet population, and then see whether we can say something about typical properties, so removing the observational biases. And uh, I think we are not there yet, So, mm -hmm. but uh, that's certainly a research line that is very interesting and should be done. Right. And now, of course, we're finding Earths, and um, I know one of your research interests is what NASA likes to do, follow the water. Mm -hmm. So, you know, people... They are excited by Earth-like planets, of course, but they also want to know if they're habitable and they want to right. know if they could have oceans and be Earth-like. What, mm -hmm. what do we know so far about that kind of thing, about the habitability as far as where water goes in a solar system? Yeah, that, that's, um, that's an important question and it's a difficult one to answer because if we look at the models of uh, terrestrial planet formation, what we were discussing before, we would expect uh, uh, the terrestrial planets, including Earth, of course, to accrete from dry rocks. So basically, mm -hmm. we wouldn't expect to have uh, uh, water in, uh, uh, in, these, uh, in these planets to start with. So the uh, most uh, accepted idea is that uh, water was brought somewhat later uh, in the game, perhaps uh, by impacts of asteroids that formed outside the snow line, mm -hmm. or perhaps even by comets, which are also large bodies that formed um, well beyond either the location close to Jupiter or in the Oort cloud. So I think this is the favorite view. Another view, uh, which I think, however, is perhaps even more interesting one, is that uh, you might uh, uh, somewhat uh, um, we say absorb water into grains, meaning you can trap some water molecules that are in the gas phase into um, dust grains and perhaps preserve that water even uh, when you do the build-up of the planets and then release the water through the oh, volcanoes later on. So I actually am very interested in this one because it would imply that all the planets even those that form inside the snow line, mm -hmm. they could have some water. And we have actually some evidence that there was past water on Mars, which mm -hmm. I think it's a good argument to uh, support this idea, as well as we know there was water on Venus because of the hydrogen to deuterium ratio that we see mm -hmm. in the atmosphere. So Venus had water and then it lost it. So at least uh, the solar system, I think, is suggesting that perhaps this other idea that uh, water can be absorbed onto dust grain is a plausible one. Mm -hmm. And of course, one place where we have to test these ideas is the Earth. So do we, can we use the Earth as the example <laughs> to test these two ideas? Where does the Earth get its oceans from? Yeah, I, I think uh, a very interesting study is the one of um, um, uh, minerals, very old minerals that are called zircons. Mm -hmm. um, so what geologists have found uh, is that uh, the properties of these uh, zircons 
suggest that the oceans were uh, formed, uh, were present very early on and the temperatures were very mild uh, just 100 million years after the formation of Earth. Wow. So this would suggest that actually um, the oceans formed uh, basically very early on. So whatever process should have helped uh, um, the formation of the ocean in uh, very early. That's amazing because 100 million years, you imagine the ter yeah. surface is only just solidified. I mean, the ocean, I mean, uh, the moon formed, what, 50 million years after formation? So. Yeah, th that number is changing from time to time, but okay. uh, yes, about that But the time, impact so rates were crazy back then, right? Yeah, so that, that's right. So um, after the cooling, basically, of Earth, almost uh, immediately there was so, an ocean. So. so is that enough to actually say, that's interesting, because I think the oldest the oldest solid evidence for life on Earth is like 3.7 mm -hmm. billion years, and then people speculate about 4 billion. Uh -huh. But can we say that the Earth was habitable 4.4 billion years ago? Is it possible? 4.4, well, <laughs> possible perhaps with some uh, extremophiles, yeah. I don't know. So we know those. Yeah. Um, but actually there are, the same group who was studying the zircons uh, uh, is pushing forward another technique um, uh, basically to look at isotopes of uh, carbon, carbon-13 mm -hmm. over carbon-12, in very old rocks that are uh, 4 billion years old, uh, and I think they are in Greenland. Mm -hmm. um, and they say, I mean, they see evidence of uh, an enrichment of 12, carbon-12 over carbon-13, which would suggest that there were some organisms there doing metabolism and taking wow. more of the carbon-12. So okay. that's an indirect evidence, of course, but um, it's an interesting one, I think. And I guess the the number of major impacts was still large enough that it's. I suppose it's possible life could have started on the Earth and then been sterilized, or it could have been multiple stars to life, right? If the impacts yeah. were still happening, the, ba the big yeah. ones during the so this uh, old, uh, heavy bombardment right. of uh, which was of when that's uh, three point nine, three point eight, yeah, or something. something like that. Although there are new uh, studies uh, that actually suggest that even there were this large impact, basically most of the heat was on the surface of mm -hmm. Earth. So if you would have had life uh, beneath the sur surface, um, and especially some extreme organisms like uh, um, thermophiles, those that are uh, hot-like um, um, organisms, then uh, they, they could have survived. So mm -hmm. it's possible that these impacts were not as sterilizing and as we might have thought. So it's a, the exoplanet field is moving so fast. When you and you, it's good because you, you do the theory too. So which of the observations in the last few years are you know most excite your interest as a theorist? I mean, because there's so many now. No longer you get a newspaper headline for finding a planet; they release hundred at a time. But what is the most exciting thing to you in the last um, couple of years? For me, the most interesting things are these uh, super Earth. Mm -hmm. uh, because uh, we have found uh, many of them, we do not have them in our solar system. Right. And, and to find what is super-Earth? Basically, they are uh, objects uh, uh, that are, say, two times the mass of Earth, mm -hmm. something like that. We do not really know what is their composition, though we can get now some uh, ideas about their bulk density if we can observe them with two different techniques, like radial velocity, uh, where we get... Uh, a mass mm -hmm. and uh, um, transit uh, uh, where we get a radius, then we can have an idea about the bulk density. 
but uh, they are interesting because one of the possibilities is that uh, they could be like uh, ocean words so uh, mm. that they would have a lot of water uh, on their surface which is of course interesting for habitability mm -hmm. and the other thing which is interesting is that uh, um, they are uh, so numerous uh, they seem to be uh, enorme basically around other stars and uh, they seem to have formed uh, uh, in situ so which would be also easier to model in mm -hmm. the near future rather than having all these uh, dynamical interactions with with other planets right so i think those are very interesting objects and and what about the, the question i tagged on a few minutes ago just how in this now in the understanding we don't understand the full range of properties how how normal abnormal is our solar system is it typical are we finding solar system analogs or close no, to them so far not <laughs> there are a few uh, cases of uh, scaled down uh, solar system around uh, for instance lower mass stars we have a few of them uh, but we have we have to understand that uh, our techniques are uh, not developed yet to find the true solar analog so um, if we look at the diversity out there our solar system doesn't look common at all but we need to understand that there are still some biases that we have to work right. on so i think in the next few years we should be able to know what is the frequency of earth size planets mm -hmm. around one astronomical unit basically we will see um, how common is earth around other stars right. and then the exact uh, um, uh, location of the other planets we will have to see mm -hmm. if uh, they match with our solar system. Now I remember being surprised when I read, started reading about M dwarfs and people looking for planets around mm -hmm. stars that were not exactly like the Sun and realizing that the you know habitable real estate could be as much mm -hmm. because there's so many of those stars so but in general terms I mean talk about the range of stars. Do we expect to find planetary systems around all stars up and down the mass spectrum or are there sort of limits expected theoretically? Um, yeah, well, uh, one limit would be, of course, uh, uh, how much mass you have available to form the planets. So um, one thing I study is um, uh, how the disk mass, so the mass in gas and dust around young stars changes with the mass of the central star. Mm -hmm. And one thing we could measure is that uh, the uh, ratio between the mass of the star and the mass of the disk uh, is about constant, which implies that as you move down to very low mass stars and even brown dwarfs, the disk mass is going to decrease right. uh, proportionally. So I think we can say... Uh, um, fairly accurately that we do not expect to have giant planets right. around uh, brown dwarfs if they formed in a disk. Mm -hmm. um, but terrestrial uh, planets? But terrestrial planets, yes. Yeah. I think we can go down to the brown dwarfs. So um, it, it's quite, uh, there should be many. Right. And we know that there are already. And of, and of course, we already know in terms of what habitable really means for biology that you know, the stellar radiation directly, it needs an energy source, right? So you yeah. could have geothermal energy or other energy sources, right? So habitability right. is a slightly flexible yeah. uh, concept. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when, uh, where do you think will be, I mean, the rapid change in the observation is amazing. It's hard, very hard to predict. But what, what does on the horizon, what do you think are the most interesting things that are going to happen in, say, exoplanet work in um, the next decade? 
Well, I think uh, what would be, well, first of all, I'm looking forward to know what is the number of uh, Earth-sized planets. Which is Kepler's goal, yeah, and it will deliver. It we will, will deliver. Know it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we will know it in a couple of years, I'm sure. We will have that number. And then I think what is uh, more interesting will be the characterization of, uh, in general, of the exoplanets, so looking at their properties, but of the atmosphere and their composition, mm -hmm. but uh, most of all, I think, of the uh, Earth-sized planets, mm -hmm. because the indirect ways we would have the capabilities of detecting some uh, biosignatures, and that is, mm -hmm. uh, I think, is the most exciting right. thing. And I, and I think people seduced by the rapid rate of progress in this field might not realize that, that how hard that is. I mean, finding yeah. Earths you can do, and it's That's hard, right. but characterization is, is another big step, right? Yeah, definitely, and it's clear that uh, unfortunately this, I mean, plan, uh, the Kepler is uh, a machine that was built, uh, I mean, for statistical purposes. Mm -hmm. So most of the planets that Kepler is detecting are very far away from us, and we have basically no chance to follow up uh, on mm -hmm. understanding their characteristics. So there is an intermediate step in between uh, knowing the number of Earth-sized planets around solar-type stars and the, characterizing them because we have to understand well our neighborhood and find those Earth-sized planets that are close to us that we can then uh, characterize. So there's so presumably complementary projects underway now to, to look more at the solar neighborhood, right? For yeah, definitely with the LBT. Mm -hmm. uh, there is a large project um, uh, going on now, which is uh, first uh, characterizing uh, the amount of uh, remaining dust that we have ar around uh, nearby stars, mm -hmm. because that remaining dust uh, can actually uh, be a problem for detecting uh, Earth-sized uh, planets around nearby stars. So that's the first uh, level. And then once we have sorted out the systems that are potentially interesting, um, I'm afraid then we will need a mission <laughs> to characterize them for to characterize their atmosphere. So space, think, we yeah. need the space environment for doing yeah. some of this work. Which we don't have at the moment. I mean, there are some right. ideas out and there. Then, and of course, NASA's budgets yes. are not putting some of these missions right in front of us. Right. So you think it may take a decade to do biomarker work? or? Uh, yes, I think the biomarkers, yes. Yeah. At least uh, on uh, truly Earth analogs. Then if we would want to try some... Uh, uh, scale-down version of Earth analogs, for mm -hmm. instance, around them, dwarfs, stars, then uh, I think we could do something with JWST, so mm -hmm. in uh, perhaps uh, five years. Yeah. <laughs> no? oh, so, so, half so, a decade. <laughs> okay, not too long to wait for something yeah. that exciting. Okay, well, thanks very much, Ilaria. Well, thanks to you.